0: The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. My name is Kate Satter and I'm your host for today. I am pleased to be joining you for episode 17 of the podcast, And I am joined today by Dr. Abigail Matthews, who is a clinical psychologist and associate director of the Eating Disorders Program here at Cincinnati Children's. Hi, Dr. Matthews. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you. We are going to be talking a bit about eating disorders today. And Dr. Matthews, we have heard a bit about some research that you have recently done related to this topic and um, some effects that the pandemic has had. So I'd really love to start off our conversation today. If you just tell us a bit about what you you studied and what your research showed. Absolutely.
1: So I think generally in terms of eating disorders and, and kids and adolescents with eating disorders, preliminary research has been showing us that the rate of symptoms that we're seeing in kids has seemed to kind of dramatically increase. And so just across you know the country and even internationally, there have been stories really highlighting this uh, this kind of phenomenon of people seeming to really struggle more with eating disorder symptoms. And so my role here at Children's is as a psychologist specializing in eating disorders treatment, but my primary role here is working on the inpatient medical unit, so that means it is a unit specifically for kids and adolescents who have medical complications of their eating disorders, and so they require acute hospitalizations, so emergency hospitalizations, because their body is having um, really severe physical complications due to their eating disorder. And so, during COVID or, or kind of the lockdown period, right after you know the start of COVID in March 2020. And kind of the months following the end of the lockdown, we were seeing very significant changes in the census of kids who were hospitalized on our unit. So it seemed that we were having this mass influx of kids needing hospitalizations, far more than we'd experienced previously. And so I've worked here for about eight years. And so just By observation alone, it seemed that we were having a lot more kids needing admission. We also noticed this trend of kids needing readmissions. And so whereas sometimes some of our kids discharge home and ultimately have another admission in the future, we were seeing this trend of them coming back very quickly. So it almost seemed like there was this bounce back effect. So they were discharging home and then coming back and needing hospitalization again really quickly. and so really, I, I was very interested, along along with some of my colleagues, in looking at, you know, is this an actual thing that's happening? And so we can believe that it's going on when we work on the unit and work with the kids who are hospitalized, but it's different to look at it statistically and actually see, hey, is this truly happening? Are we seeing a rise in cases? And so we um, we ended up doing a study really looking at the period of time from July 2017 until October 2020. And we looked at admission rates before the onset of COVID. Um, and then we also looked at the period, the six-week period when our community was in lockdown. So as you can all remember, that that really difficult time where we weren't able to leave our homes um, except for emergency reasons, you know, when kids were all required to do virtual schooling, when all non-mandatory medical visits were put on hold kind of that specific period we wanted to look at census and then we also looked at the period of time after the census or the lockdown period was lifted and so um, really we were looking at three time periods before covid covid lockdown and after covid lockdown ended but again only until october 2020 so not beyond that we all know the pandemic still persists the the consequences of the pandemic but we were looking at that specific time period What we saw were a few really interesting things that confirmed kind of our beliefs. We saw a significant increase in census. Um, That means we saw significantly higher rates of kids being admitted on our inpatient units. So more kids were having hospital or medical complications of eating disorders and were requiring hospitalization, both in terms of daily admission, so we were getting significantly more daily admissions than we were before covid as well as an overall census so at any given time there were more kids on our unit than there used to be Um, the other interesting thing that we saw was that there was an eight times greater likelihood of kids being readmitted within 30 days and so this is all i should point out when i say covid this is the period after lockdown ended so when the community kind of reopened we still obviously had a lot of precautions and social distancing But when the community opened up a little bit more, that's when we saw the significant increase in census, but also eight times greater likelihood of having to be hospitalized again within 30 days of discharge is really, really huge. Um, So we saw that. I think the other really interesting thing that we saw was looking back at patients who were admitted during COVID as compared to before COVID, about a third of all the kiddos um, hospitalized after the start of COVID reported that the pandemic played a significant role in the development of their eating disorder. And from a research perspective, you know, we can't really say that the, the pandemic caused the eating disorder because we're just kind of looking at retrospective data, I meaning we're looking back at the past versus kind of measuring it as we move forward. But kind of going through charts and seeing what kids were saying caused their eating disorders, at least one third of them reported that the pandemic had something to do with it, and so that's really, really a, a big deal too. Um, the other finding that we we saw in our study was that during the lockdown there were virtually no admissions, and so during the six week period we only had three kids hospitalized on our unit. And I would say our average census um, without without COVID or prior to COVID was about three to four. Um, every day, every given day, we'd have three or four kids on the unit. And so the six week period, only three kids were hospitalized the whole whole time. So it was basically like a ghost town on our unit. But then once the lockdown was lifted, we had this influx and we were seeing more than we'd ever seen before.
0: I'm interested in that. Um, Do you think it's just that families didn't um, bring their kids for care during that time because they didn't, think that it kind of rose to that level of needing to leave to seek care? Or do you think they were just
1: so inwardly facing um, that it was something else? Sure. I think that there are probably a number of different factors that played into it. Um, And when you, are you, let me back up for a second. So are you asking specifically why the census was so low during that period? Why I think...
0: Yeah, why do you think mm-hmm. that we
1: that so few kids sure. were here for help? Sure. So so yeah, that's something that we really looked at and really tried to f- to tackle that question. And again, there there are probably a few things that fed into that. I think that you know, it's notable that within our program at the hospital, we never suspended in-person visits for medical visits. And so In other divisions and in other, you know, medical centers, they actually put a stop to in-person visits and were doing virtual visits instead of in-person. At our hospital, in-person visits were encouraged, um, but there were virtual visits offered. Um, But what I believe happened is that a lot of families were afraid to actually come into the hospital, right? And so I think everyone, there was this overarching fear of, you know, getting COVID and mm-hmm. people were very worried about bringing their child into the hospital where they could potentially, you know, be around other sick people. I think that that was one of the factors involved. I think another factor um, potentially was that when kids were seen medically, virtually, so if they opted for this virtual um, kind of visit instead of in person, you know, the physician wasn't really laying eyes on the kid, the patients. Mm-hmm. And so, it's required to see, you know, weight trends and get vitals in order to determine if kids are medically unstable. And often for eating disorders, the need for hospitalization comes as a surprise. And so it's not like parents bring their kid in expecting that they'll be admitted. It's more of, oh my gosh, we didn't realize that it was this bad. Um, So there's that piece. I also think another piece was that, you know, therapy and mental health resources were shut down. And Mm -hmm. so, Um, You know, even kids who are already established in our system and getting treatment really lost access to services for a number of weeks. It took us a few weeks to get virtual sessions set up, and so we would maybe have short phone calls with families. And anorexia nervosa in particular is a really severe illness, and I think it's really important that we see our patients weekly just to keep making sure that they're on track, and so I think that that's a piece as well.
0: As you've been... um working with these patients in the meantime, do you have any insight from them in what it was that was happening during that lockdown time that they think impacted
1: the trajectory of their illness? Absolutely. That's a really good question. So, uh, so like in, you know, with any answer, there are a number of different things that could could really um, feed into this for, for every given patient or adolescent child or adolescent. Um, What we know um, in terms of why eating disorders develop is that it is a combination of biology and environment, right? And so when we look at what causes an eating disorder for a given person, it's often described as a perfect storm. So it's typically a number of factors coming together We can never just look back and be like, this happened, that is why you developed an eating disorder. Um, For anorexia nervosa in particular, and that's often kind of what I talk more about because that's the diagnosis where we see the most hospital admissions, the most medical complications. But research tells us that between 50 and 80% of why someone develops anorexia nervosa is biological. And so there's this highly biological predisposition. And then what happens is when... You know, you're in an environment with particular stressors. If you have that biologic propensity, it can kind of lead into the development of an eating disorder. And so, you know, I think that the COVID 19 pandemic and some of the consequences absolutely acted as that environmental stressor for kids who are likely already at risk, just given their biological um, underpinnings. Um, but some of the factors that, you know, kids have described include, well, Let me back up a little bit, too. I I think another thing that we typically see is personality characteristics common for people who develop eating disorders are actually really good personality characteristics. I talk to families about this a lot. You know, most kids who develop anorexia nervosa are really good kids who are often highly perfectionistic. They get good grades. They're conscientious. They're the kids who, like, want to do the right thing. They like following rules. And again, this isn't everyone, so I don't want to give a blanket, you know, description because everyone is different. But we often see kids who are really high achieving, who like to do the right thing, um, typically do really well when they put their mind to something. And so with COVID came a number of things. I mean, I think kids were pulled from their day-to-day routine. Um, And so, again, for someone who's very organized and rule-bound and likes to kind of do do as well as they can, suddenly, you know, not being in school – um, having tons of free time, being pulled from all of their extracurricular activities, not being around their friends. It's really, you know, a perfect storm to struggle a little bit more. Um, I would say a number of kids talked about how they saw this as an opportunity to finally focus on their health, right? Like, I've always thought that I could work on being healthier, because that's not a bad thing, right? It's its okay to try to be a healthier you know, person in general, but these kids tend to be very black and white when they kind of put their efforts into something. And so it was, hey, I have all this free time. You know, I feel kind of uncomfortable because I have too much free time. I'm going to actually finally work on working out and like working in my fitness or being healthier in my eating. Um, and then, you know, with this biological predisposition, it's like when certain people start engaging in dieting and exercise behaviors, there's a point where it's almost described as like it becomes out of control and they can't stop. So... I think that lack of structure, being pulled from school, was a big one. Another one that we we saw a lot was for athletes, um, kids who are really motivated to be good athletes and they do sports a lot. Suddenly, um, you know, sports activities were canceled, gyms were canceled, and so for some kids, it was almost this like preventative: if I diet, then maybe I won't lose my athletic ability. They were uncomfortable because they couldn't do the degree of workout, and they they were almost overly compensating by. Eating better so that they would still be in good shape. Um, social media was another factor. I believe we know social media really has a significant influence on negative body image and eating disorder kind of risk, eating disorder behaviors. And we know that during the pandemic, there's been a significantly greater increase in the use of social media by kids. Again, they're home, they don't have as much to do. Um, I don't know how many of you all have heard about this, but there was this thing going around called the quarantine 15, which was kind of the bane of my existence, just to put it, <laughs> um, but, but messages spreading like wildfire on social media that, hey, during this pandemic, you're gonna be sedentary and you're gonna gain weight. And so kids were very distraught about, oh my gosh, I don't wanna gain weight. Like, so I better diet now to make sure I don't. Um, we had some kids who heard that, being unhealthy put them at greater risk for, de- for contracting COVID. And so they, you know, decided to get healthy, um, I'm quoting, air quotes, healthy, right, um, in order to presumably decrease the risk of contracting COVID. So we saw all of these different reasons. And again, you know, you could have a million kids who went on a diet to avoid quarantine 15, but only... A, a small amount develop an eating disorder. So again, it's this biological predisposition that kind of feeds into these environmental stressors, but absolutely has really, really been difficult. That is a whole pile mm-hmm. of
0: stressors. Yes. Yeah. That just, I mean, talk about a perfect storm. Yeah. So many things at one time. A lot of what you were sharing with us, um, healthy eating, healthy eating, exercise, like these, these are good things. So what is kind of that line between good, healthy activities and an eating disorder diagnosis? Mm
1: -hmm. That's a really good question. So I think that there are a number of, I keep answering this, this, every question I feel like I'm answering the same way. There are a number of different things that would, would promote (laughs) or feed into that. Such Um, as medicine, though. Yes, exactly. Yeah, definitely. So when something becomes a problem, it is causing impairment in one's life, right? So I guess that's kind of a simple way of answering that. But um, generally, you know, lots of people can be on diets, but when it crosses a threshold where it's actually causing impairment or getting in the way of someone's life, then it can become a problem. But I I think with eating disorders, it's a little bit more difficult because it often is reinforcing. And so kids will often say, you know, I'm actually like succeeding. I'm losing weight. I'm finally feeling better. It's not necessarily getting in the way, or if it is. So for example, maybe they're diet becomes so extreme that now they won't go out to eat with friends because they're like, I can't eat food at a restaurant because what happens if it's bad or it's not healthy or I gain weight? Um, Kids would say, you know, what I'll see often for some kids is they'll be like, well, that doesn't matter. Like my diet is the most important thing. I have to be healthy. If I gain the weight, kids won't, no one will like me anymore. And so it's almost, I think with adolescence, We have to look to parents, like, is this causing impairment? What are you seeing? Are there changes in your child's mood? I think also um, when eating becomes something that causes a lot of stress or Mm. I think when we see someone engaging in very extreme rules around eating, right? And so uh, healthy, what does healthy even mean? I think healthy means eating everything in moderation, right? But I think a lot of people with disordered eating – will say that there are good and bad foods and when it turns into i cannot eat pizza pizza is bad pizza will make me gain weight i'm like okay like you know maybe if you ate pizza three times a day for the rest of your life eh, maybe that wouldn't be healthy per se but you know it's more of when the the belief system around eating becomes irrational and it's leading to avoidance um Also, when we're seeing things like significant weight loss, things like that, um, that, that level of impairment.
0: So you mentioned anorexia nervosa Mm -hmm. a couple of times. Um, and I think that many people also, um, understand what bulimia is. Mm -hmm. Are there other eating disorders or other kind of forms of disordered eating that parents
1: should be aware of or know what to watch for? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I I think that the other full threshold diagnoses um, for eating disorders include binge eating disorder. And so, binge eating disorder refers to engaging in binge eating. So, binge eating means eating a significantly large amount of food in a short period of time and feeling out of control. Um, And so, when people think about bulimia nervosa, they're thinking about binge eating followed by purging, so maybe vomiting or compulsive exercise or fasting as a way to try to, quote, get rid of the calories or, or make up for the calories. But in binge eating, there's the eating behavior, but not that compensatory behavior. And so binge eating disorder is an eating disorder um, that is more, pre- more prevalent than both anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Um, another eating disorder that is relatively unheard of is called avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. Um, most people will will call it ARFID, which is the acronym. Um, ARFID refers to people who, well, well, it looks different for different people, but generally it's when someone is not eating but the reason that they're not eating is not associated with weight or body image in any way. It's often driven by fear. So that's one type that we'll see of ARFID. So maybe someone becomes, or someone has a choking incident. I've I've seen a a number of people who come in, they choked on rice, for example, and then they become terrified. If they Mm. eat more, they'll continue choking, they could die. And so we'll see kids who have become so terrified of eating, it's almost like a phobia, where they have to come to the hospital because they haven't eaten because they're so afraid. Um, also, some kids have really severe picky eating that's gotten worse, and it's resulted in them having impairment in their day-to-day life, weight loss, things like that. So
0: thank you for that. So I know that this this next question, I understand, um, you know, there's kind of in. Um, an answer for during the, the time frame of your study, but how typically common are eating disorders in adolescents
1: and teens, kind of the pandemic aside? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I can't quote you exact figures, unfortunately, um, but what I will tell you is that I believe the point prevalence, so that means right now at any given point of time, if we're looking at adolescents who have one full-blown eating, any form of a full-blown eating disorder, I believe the, the point prevalence is about 5%. Um, and that is um, that includes anorexia, nervosa, bulimia, nervosa, binge eating disorder, so any eating disorder across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we look at kids with subclinical eating disorder behavior, so disordered eating, and so maybe they occasionally – fast or they occasionally make themselves throw up or engage in really unhealthy eating disorders. What I believe the, the most recent quote, prevalence quote is around upwards of like 35%. So very high, right? So it's not uncommon for kids to be engaging in some of these behaviors. It's also, I believe, 70% 70% of kids and adolescents have negative body image, pretty significant body dissatisfaction, so unhappy with how they look, unhappy with their bodies. And negative body dissatisfaction is one of the strongest predictors of developing disordered eating or full on, full blown eating disorders. So, this is a very prevalent, pervasive problem.
0: That was just increased by the pandemic as well.
1: That's what the belief is. I don't think that there's enough true data speaking to that yet, Mm -hmm. but I think in terms of looking at admission rates and things Mm -hmm. like that, we see an increase, but I don't know if we can truly say that the prevalence rate has gone up. Um, but at least in our community, in terms of our hospital, we've seen more kids needing services as well as studies reported across the world. So
0: I'm going to shift just a little bit and ask you about treatment. Mm -hmm. So what
1: does What does treatment look like for these kids? Yeah, that's a really good question. So what we know about evidence-based treatment is that the family is actually the primary resource in a child or adolescent's recovery. So I would say 20 years ago, the therapy intervention of choice was individual therapy. So that would be... Meeting alone with kids with eating disorders and really working with them on trying to, you know, motivate them to eat more, to help them understand that they needed to eat more. But what research actually tells us is that individual therapy is not indicated. It's not very helpful. And the reason for this, or one of the reasons for this, is that we know that when someone isn't getting adequate nutrition and they're struggling with malnutrition, there are severe negative impacts on the brain. And so even if you're someone who's never had a history of depression or anxiety, and the data supports this, if you were put on a severe restrictive diet and became malnourished, your emotional functioning would tank. So you would struggle with anxiety, depression, probably struggling with making good decisions, paying attention, Um, And I would say often when we look at kids in our medical unit, they've often lost at least 30% of their body weight, right? So you think about, you know, I'll I'll say this to parents sometimes, you think about like if you fast for a day, imagine kind of how foggy you might feel. And for some of these kids, they've been dieting and and not getting in what they need for such a long time that the brain really takes a hit. Um, But what happens for people again with this predisposition there's so much that happens in the brain so there's the so one thing that has been shown is that people who at least develop anorexia nervosa have the ability to kind of override sensations in the body meaning they're just better able to overlook kind of the discomfort that might come with not eating if anything you know not eating we see that there is a reduction in anxiety even at the brain level so there are all these things going on in the brain that make not eating very reinforcing. It makes them feel better. They're not as hungry. Like lots of different things go on. So anyway, asking them or trying to get them to be motivated to eat more is often not very effective because they're not functioning at full capacity. Um, We often see they, they have this almost phobic reaction to eating. And it's hard because I think a lot of parents just normal, you know, normal like Reason would say just eat more, right? Like you need to. But what happens is when you have your child sit in front of a plate of food, often it's like fight or flight response. They get really overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. They feel really, you know, freaked out. They might not feel hungry. They might have a stomach ache, and these things are all really happening. And so, we know that relying on kids to get back on track with their eating is just not very realistic. And maybe it's realistic for a day, but then it can kind of waffle. So that being said, what we know about evidence-based treatment is that we actually look to parents to completely take over all eating behaviors until an adolescent is weight restored or shows the ability to make good decisions around their eating. And an analogy that we often use is food is your medicine, and we compare it to any severe um, medical illness, right? So... If you were a parent and your child had cancer and they were in the hospital and they were like, no way, mom, I am not getting chemotherapy, it's going to hurt, I'm not doing it, I'm going home, what would you do, right, what would you say? And, and the majority, I'm guessing the majority of patients would say, I am so sorry this is so hard. We don't want you to have to go through this, but we have to do this. Chemotherapy is no choice. We're going to sit with you. We're going to help you get through it, but you have to live. We just don't have another option. Your health is our priority. And it's the same thing with eating. And 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 it's very similar, right? Your child is showing that they are not making good decisions around food choices. And it, it's, it's literally like if you're child had cancer and you were like well let you just think about it you decide if you want chemo you know we'll give you some more time you let me know tomorrow and then the next day the kid is like well no mom give me another week and they're like okay you take another week right this is a life or death illness anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness eating disorders have the highest mortality rate um i just saw a recent statistic that adolescents with anorexia nervosa have a 10 times higher likelihood of death than their peers without eating disorders um, so this is a very scary illness, and we really want parents to be aware and empowered to step in, and set some expectations around eating with their kids, because this is a health-related behavior. And you know, if your child is not making good decisions, I think in in many other areas, as parents, we would feel comfortable stepping in and being like, "No, this is what you have to do. Like, I'm sorry you don't want to. This is what you have to do." Mm-hmm. And so, from a therapy perspective, we work with families on ways to do that in in a an unemotional manner, right, which is, uh, as you can imagine, very challenging, but helping parents be empathic and validating and um, provide their child with support in doing this, which can be really difficult, especially when you have an adolescent who's very malnourished and their brain's not working and we know that they're more dysregulated emotionally and they might be all over the place. And so that kind of circles me back to one of the biggest, you know, I, I think there are a lot of biases and misconceptions about eating disorders, things like You know, families are the cause or these kids have severe mental illness. There's a lot of bias even among uh, medical providers just at large that these patients can be, you know, manipulative and really hard to work with. But what we know is that a lot of what what we may see that's challenging is secondary to malnutrition not the eating disorder per se. And we know that even studies tell us that families of kids with eating disorders are no different than families of kids with anxiety, depression, any other mental illness. So we know that families are not the cause, right? Of course, you know, I'm a parent, no parent is perfect. And I'm sure there are things I could be doing differently as every parent out there, but parents are not the cause, you know, and it's how do we help you as a parent step in and take over eating again. And I think the The surprising thing, or at least I initially thought it was surprising, is that kids actually often want their parents to take over. Kids will say, I cannot do it. Like, I'll say to them, if I gave you this plan and I sent you home to do it on your own, what would you do? And the the kid will, like, look at me and have tears in their eyes and say, I wish I could. I want to. I'm scared, but I know I can't. And I think that's really powerful for parents to hear, like, your child cannot do this. Like, and we know that over time, as they're gaining weight and getting back to where they need to be, the brain really starts to clear up. And it's really amazing to see they start feeling better psychologically. They start showing the ability to try eating more. And over time, we just transition that eating back to the child in like a developmentally appropriate way um, until they're showing that they can do that. And, and, And so the intervention is really refeeding and helping parents do that. And then once someone is at a healthy weight, then we look at like, what else can we do in therapy to help if there are other things that we could target?
0: So when you have a success like that, where you see the child start to, you know, take some of that responsibility back over for themselves, um, what does that tell you about that child, that particular child's prognosis? um, and then like prognosis in general for, for these conditions.
1: It's a really, it's a really good question and I'm happy you asked. Because, again, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about eating disorders, and one is that if you have an eating disorder, you never get better. I hear that a lot, and I'm quick to say that is not true. Um, What we know is that about a third of people diagnosed um, with anorexia nervosa can completely recover. So that means move on, not have to deal with it, have a completely normal life. Um, What we know about that group of people, the third who just completely get better, is that Duration of illness is really important. So the the shorter time that they've had the illness before they get treatment, the better the chances of them getting better. So we know that the longer someone is malnourished and not getting nutrition, the more the brain is becoming entrenched in those behaviors. And so we want to get kids in quickly. We want to get them refed. We want to get their brain renourished to help them just move back into normal life. Um, another predictor, well, another factor associated with better outcomes is family. And so knowing that there's family that can kind of step in and do this intervention is really important. Um, there's about a third of patients or people with eating disorders who may struggle with relapses. And I think that's a, that's a common or an important concern that we have. Um, and again, if you think about it, if you're biologically predisposed to this illness, what tends to happen is that when people with a history of an eating disorder lose weight for any reason or decide to diet, it almost can propel them back into that. And so we'll even see people, you know, we've actually, I've had a number of of patients or people I've heard about who got COVID and lost taste and smell and had recovered from their eating disorder, but then they were losing weight from COVID and they were like, food doesn't even sound good anymore and it can propel them back. And it's almost like once they start losing weight, the eating disorder cognitions, like those distorted ways of thinking, get really loud again. And it's because the brain isn't functioning very well. It's really interesting. And so, you know, sometimes it's not even intentional often, or maybe we see during transitions when kids go to college, they're higher risk because maybe they have more stress. And so in therapy, we're really working on, you know, let's look at possible signs of relapse. How do we keep you taking care of yourself to make sure you're always, you know, at a place where you're you're you know, going to be able to fight off any potential challenges that might propel relapse. There's also a third of people who may have a chronic course, and those are the people who may end up having um, dying younger, higher mortality and morbidity. Um, But what we know about this category too is that, again, like the longer their duration of illness, the longer someone struggled with this, the, the prognosis gets poor, unfortunately. But also people who have other significant mental health problems fall into this bucket. So if, you know, someone has a history of pretty severe trauma or, you know, other personality disorders, things like that, it's it's much more difficult to overcome the eating disorder because I think it all just becomes part of what's going on with them. And so it's not just the eating disorder. There are other things that are kind of feeding into it, if that makes sense.
0: It does. It makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit about um, the age of kids and age of, I mean, is there a typical age of, of onset or a a particular age when parents should
1: start keeping track? Um, I, I think that it's never too early to start keeping track, but I say that as a psychologist who specializes in this, so I'm a bit biased in what I see. Um, what we know about age of onset is the greatest risk for developing an eating disorder is in adolescents ages 15 to 19 but we also see this sub this other kind of group of kids who develop eating disorders younger Mm -hmm. um so you know 13 we had a pretty big influx interestingly right around covid but i don't but there was nothing significant about it when we looked at data we saw a bunch of like 11 year olds um a lot younger um I I can say I've seen a few eight-year-olds, which is very uncommon, I think, given that it doesn't seem to happen as much, but but they happen, right? And so I think that, you know, one of my biggest pieces of advice to parents is that it is always okay to to tell your kid they can't diet. It is always okay to tell your kid, you know, you need to eat more, right, within reason. And so, you know, when I, I think there's this, belief which is probably true that most kids go through a period of like dabbling with dieting but as a parent i will be the parent saying no that's not an option because if your child is predisposed and they start losing weight i mean you could propel into an eating disorder and i think that it's really important as parents to send a strong message that what we care about is health not weight Mm -hmm. right like by dieting like what are you what is the function of that i can understand if there are true health reasons that someone needs to diet for health. But if your kid is like, I'm going to diet, I want to go on spring break and look the best that I can in my bikini or my swimsuit or whatever, as a parent, I would be the first one saying, no, nope, not an option. I'm sorry. As a family, we focus on healthy eating and this is what that looks like. And I say that knowing that that's easier said than done because kids aren't that easy that they just naturally listen. I think the younger they are, it's easier. But I think sending that strong message.
0: And we also have been saying kids, and I think mm-hmm. that there's probably a, a set of people who assume that this is a, a female diagnosis. Yes. Um,
1: is that true? It is not true. It is, but it's not. I mean, and so what we know about eating disorders is that they do not discriminate by race, ethnicity, age, gender, um, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status. I think that that is another um, Misconception, and so we've actually seen the rate of eating disorders in males. I don't, I don't know if I can say rising, um, but but it's believed to be about twenty five percent of all cases. Um, however, the caveat to that is that there is so much more stigma in males, or kind of lack of awareness in males, that they're much less likely to perceive it to be an eating disorder and to seek help. Hmm. Um, I think another big area where we see a pretty significant, well, another big area where there's, there's a lot of misconception is weight. Like you do not have to be underweight to have an eating disorder, right? Eating disorders affect people of all shapes and sizes. And I would say 40% of patients who are hospitalized on our medical service are of normal weight. So they might be walking around and no one would know that their heart rate is very low because they don't quote, look to have an eating disorder because they look to be of normal weight, when in reality, maybe they've lost 100 pounds, but they're still considered normal weight, or mm-hmm. they're struggling with severe binge eating. Or, I mean, I think that you you just, we can't make assumptions. I think not making assumptions is a really important um, point. And
0: actually, you have answered all of my questions. Is there anything else as we, as we look to wrap up this conversation that... That you want to make sure we
1: we talk about a little bit before we finish. sure I can always talk forever about this, but I think some other important considerations for parents is you know, we don't have a huge amount of data to show what predicts eating disorder development, but we do know that there are some factors that can increase risk in terms of family factors um, and a really strong factor associated with child's eating behavior is parent eating behavior, right? And so I think parent dieting behavior is very predictive of kids struggling with eating, um, both in terms of eating disorders, um, anorexia nervosa through obesity, right? So um, parent modeling of their own dieting behaviors is very strong. Um, Another factor that can influence child development of eating disorders is parent weight talk that's a really big one that i'll talk a lot to families about um, talking about your own weight talking about others weights even if it's hey i feel really skinny right or that person looks too thin just talking about weight in general puts this focus on weight um, and so i'm always encouraging people to reframe and talk about health Right. And it just sets up a culture of this is something that we really pay attention to in our family. Um, It's hard though, because, you know, I'm an eating disorder psychologist and I have a child and I am like, shoot, did I just talk about weight in front of my kid? Right. Like, I just feel meaning like everybody talks about these things sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's the way our society is built. And so it's more of we're not perfect, but just trying to be mindful of those things, I think, can be really important and helpful. And, again, really focusing on we care about health overweight, because, in reality, that's the truth. Like, who cares what your child weighs? We care about their health, and it's hard because there are all these sociocultural factors too that put a lot of pressure on weight and appearance, and that makes it really tough. So I know that there are lots of factors involved, but I think at the end of the day our hope is that kids kind of come back to their family unit, and, and that's kind of what is the crux of kind of their development, but maybe that's – Really optimistic thinking in this world, but so.
0: But I think it's really important to, um, you know, t- to outline those things that families can do, because I think there are just adults that wait. Conversation is very normal, and they might not realize the impact that it's having on the adolescents who who live in their home. Absolutely,
1: and I I think it's also. Challenging. Well, parents and every family member has their own dietary needs, right? We're all different people. And so, you know, some parents may have to be on a diet. I I say have to, but like maybe it's recommended for their health or maybe, you know, they have celiac disease and they have to eat gluten-free. And so it's hard because we all have our own needs. And I think being able to articulate that to kids as well, like, hey, maybe I'm gluten-free because I have celiac – but no you don't have celiac and you need a well balanced diet right and talking about why you have that specific need versus you know i, I see i see like 11 year olds on keto because their whole family is on a keto diet stuff like that where and again i don't in my experience parents really just appreciate information and education because i think most parents have really good intentions but don't really know the potential impact and we just know that from the research so
0: and I think you said it earlier, everything in moderation mm-hmm. sounds like it's probably a pretty good way for families to think, especially if there are people in their, in their home who, um, who do eat a particular way because it's advised for their own health, but everybody else eats everything in moderation. Um, it, that's just something that's always made sense to me as a parent. This has been an incredible conversation Thank you for joining us, Dr. Matthews. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. We will see you next week for another episode of the Young and Healthy Podcast. Thank you for joining us. This episode was recorded on October 7th, 2021. The content of the Young and Healthy Podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by the talented Stephen Greco. This episode was produced by Symphony Pits. Thanks for listening. Join us next week.
1: Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram,
0: Facebook, and Twitter.